If you have your Bibles, please open them now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today we are, uh, we are beginning to look at one of the most beautiful chapters in this letter, and honestly, one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. There is so much hope and comfort for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly for this Christmas season ahead of us. As hard as the holidays can be for us, we, we need the truth of this chapter. So friends, let me encourage you, again, to lean in with me to God's word, to lean in to receive comfort and hope that we all need. The, the, the little baby that we celebrate together this December is the risen and reigning king who has conquered sin and death. Amen. Let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so we, you believed. <clears throat> Excuse me, amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I, I wonder how sharp your memory is these days. Would you say that you have a good memory or a bad memory? Personally, I would say that I have a good memory in some areas and a very bad memory in other areas. Sadly, I often remember pointless things and forget the most valuable ones. I, I can remember conversations from 20 years ago, but if Ashley asked me to pick three things up at the store, I'm forgetting two of them, <laughs> guaranteed. I have large amounts of scripture memorized, but I can't remember the plot of the movie I watched two nights ago. And I think that that's true for many of us. We can remember certain things but not all things. And so we often try to find different ways to remember. We write things down. We put things on our calendars. Uncle Billy from It's a Wonderful Life tied strings around his finger in order to remember, but oftentimes those things don't work just like it didn't for Uncle Billy. But do you know what the number one way to remember something is? It's repetition. If you want to remember something, you need to repeat it over and over and over again. You can have something memorized backwards and, and forwards, but if you don't repeat it in an ongoing way, eventually you will begin to forget it. Regular repetition is the best way to remember things. 
Friends, our text today starts with these words from Paul. Now, I would remind you. And what does he want to remind us of? Now, it must be something new, right? It must be something that he hasn't talked to us about yet in this letter thus far. As he begins to close out this letter, Paul must have something new that he has forgotten to tell us and that he wants us to remember, and so he speaks to it now, right? Paul, what is it? What have you not already shared with us in chapters 1 to 14? He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Paul, you want to remind us of the gospel? You have been sharing the gospel with us constantly over the last 14 chapters. You've spoken of Jesus and his work on our behalf in chapter 1. You said that you resolved to preach nothing but Jesus and him crucified in chapter two. You said that you, 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 the, you spoke of the Passover lamb in chapter six. You reminded us of how Christ died for us in chapter eight. You told us to boast in nothing but the gospel in chapter nine. Paul, why are you reminding us of this yet again? Don't we have it covered by now? Church, Paul wants us to remember what is of first importance. He wants us to remember what rises above every other detail or bit of information in our busy lives. What should we remember this December more than all of the holiday schedules, more than the shopping list for Christmas morning, more than the traditions we want to keep? Paul says there is something of first importance and he reminds us of it yet again so that we will not forget. It is that important. Paul's tying a string around every finger and every toe. He's putting sticky notes on every mirror. He's putting it into our phones to remember. We must not forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main idea. Redeemer family, we must remember and be personally changed by the gospel. We must remember and be personally changed by the gospel. You know, Another great way to remember things is not just through repetition, but through considering that thing in different ways and from different angles. Different angles of a thing can sometimes lock it into our memory, and and Paul helps us in this here. And so we have three points. We must, point number one, remember the gospel theologically. Point number two, we must remember the gospel historically. And then point number three, we must remember the gospel personally. Those are our three points. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, we must remember the gospel theologically. Paul begins in verses one and two by speaking about our need to remember the gospel and how it is still actively at work in our lives. And we're going to speak to those verses very soon. But we need to begin by looking at verses three to four. Paul says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You know, sometimes we can forget how absolutely central the gospel is. Not, Not just to our personal lives, but also to God's entire plan of redemption. I don't know if you can feel this way or not, but there, at times I can feel that, that Jesus dying on the cross was, was, must have been a much later solution to a long and complex problem that other attempts to fix had not solved. Right? We know the story of Scripture. He created us in the garden. That didn't work out. He gave us the Ten Commandments. That didn't solve the problem. 
He created a whole sacrificial system to atone for our sins, but that didn't work either. He established an earthly kingdom with a king after his own heart. That didn't work. He sent prophets to speak truth to us. That didn't work. And so finally, you can feel like he decided, okay, fine. All these other attempts on my part have failed. Let me send my own son, and maybe that will solve the problem. But friends, what we see here is that the Christmas miracle and the miracle of the cross and the resurrection were not just a last-ditch effort on God's part. No, it was his plan all along. Paul wants to remind us that Christ died for our sins, listen, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. To remember the gospel theologically is not just to remember the theology of the gospel, but rather to remember that the gospel is absolutely central to God's plan for humanity and for this world. It's central to all of our theology. God doesn't need a secondary or a backup plan. No, his first plan is the best plan, and it will get the job done. These words, friends, in accordance with the scriptures, they're wonderful words for us as Christians. These words affirm this understanding that the gospel was central from the very beginning. Listen, when God said, let there be light in Genesis chapter one, in that moment he fully knew that the word would become flesh and dwell among us, full of grace and truth. From before the beginning of time, he he knew that that saving humanity would require sending his only begotten son as a little baby into this world. He knew what it would cost, and he still spoke us into existence because of his great love and mercy. Look at the story that he has written. For I deliver to you as a first importance that Christ, Let's let's just hit pause on the word Christ. Let's just pause there for a moment. Messiah. This is Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus. Jesus, God himself, eternal, divine, omnipotent, the one that angels adore and speak of as holy, holy, holy. He is the eternal king, but yet he is spoken of as the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent to redeem his people from their sins. And how did he do that? How did he carry out his messianic mission? By being a good teacher? No, not first. By being a miracle worker? Not first. By loving the poor and the destitute, yes, but not first. All of that is good, but that is not how he saved his people from their sins. He died. He died and his death was in accordance with the scriptures. We've seen this, right? Over the last four years, we've seen this again and again. Throughout the whole book of Genesis, we saw this. We're going to see this throughout the whole book of Exodus in the next year. Penal substitution, God's wrath, his fury against sin passing over us because of the propitiatory work of his son Jesus on our behalf. This was not a last ditch effort, folks. This is what God planned all along. When when God killed animals in the Garden of Eden in order to take the skin to cover the, the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, it was a picture of his plan to ultimately kill his son, a descendant of Eve, in order to cover your nakedness and shame as well. 
when he told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, but then at the last moment gave a ram as a substitute for that sacrifice. It was a picture of the substitutionary work of his only begotten son on our behalf. When, when the people of Israel were getting ready to leave Egypt and the angel of death passed over the homes of everyone who had the blood of a pure and spotless lamb on their do- doorpost, that was a picture of the cross and the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. When Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, he was speaking of Jesus, our Messiah. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, why? Why did he die? Why did God plan it this way? Because your sins are bad. And my sins are bad. We deserve the wrath, the holy fury of wrath against our sins. Did you see the pictures and the videos this week of the the Mauna Loa volcano? Right, it's the biggest volcano in the world, I think. It's erupting for the first time in almost 40 years. The pictures just show this this red hot lava just spewing out and and bubbling out. It, It couldn't be held down under the surface any longer. Friends, God's wrath, his red hot fury against our sin is like that volcano. The the wrath has always been there, but it has not always been visible to us. Why? Because our God is slow to anger. Romans chapter three, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. But this is the reality. His wrath needs to come out and it will come out against all sins. But listen, Jesus laid himself over that volcano of wrath and he absorbed every drop of that hot lava against us and our sin. He absorbed every drop so that not a drop would fall on you or on me. That's amazing. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It's God's plan. It's his purpose and he's accomplished it. I I love I love how Paul talks about these things. It's so factual, but yet so uh, spiritual at the same time. He, he speaks of Christ dying, and then he says that he was buried. Listen, the burial of Christ was confirmation of his death. Jesus did not faint on the cross, okay? People don't just faint on crosses while being crucified. Roman soldiers were professional executioners. They, they knew how to kill someone. It was their job. People died in that place. And then Jesus was visibly before others taken down from the cross without an ounce of life or breath in his body. He was carefully wrapped in burial garments. There's no life in him in that moment. He was laid in a tomb. That tomb was sealed. There's no question about this. The claim that Jesus simply fainted on the cross is is quite, it's lunacy. This really happened, this was a real death and it really happened because it is central to the story that God saw fit to write in his great love. To remember the gospel theologically is to remember it from God's perspective. He wrote it this way. And he wrote it in this way to prove his great love for us. And he wrote it in this way to show us that there, listen, there's no evil. There's no sorrow in this world that his love and his grace and his power cannot conquer. Friend, listen, I don't know what pain, 
I don't know what sorrow you and your family are going to endure this Christmas season. I, I don't know how alone you feel today. I don't know what fears you are wrestling with. I don't know even how unsettled you may be. But one of the effects that remembering the gospel theologically can and should have, one of, one of the results of, of seeing how the cross and the grave and the resurrection were according to the scriptures, well, one of the effects is that it should greatly encourage us that if God can use the greatest evil, the, the darkest moment in all of human history, if he can plan for that and then use it for the greatest good in human history, so he can use your suffering as well. Amen. Christian, he's using your pain today. He's using your sorrow. He's using your struggle with depression. He's using your disease. He's using your loneliness. Nothing is a surprise to our God and he is working to demonstrate his goodness and his power in all of our lives despite our sorrow and our pain. And so, Redeemer Fellowship, let's remember the gospel theologically together. The cross was not a surprise to him and let's also remember how, how central the resurrection is to us as well. Point number two, we must remember the gospel historically. Now, why? Why do we need to remember the gospel historically? Well, because here in 2022, where, where everyone is entitled to their own perspective and no one wants to step on each other's toes and no one can be said to be wrong, we as Christians can be tempted to feel like our faith is just one of many faith options out there. It's just another ideology, just another spiritual form or, or religious practice that that happens to work for us here in this room, but may not work for everyone else. If, if, if someone else doesn't believe this with us, that's okay. Maybe they will find something that works for them. But friends, Paul wants us to know that our faith is not just one of many options. When it comes to eternal and spiritual matters and, and truth, the situation before us it's not like choosing your meal at, at Chick-fil-A later today. Not today, because it's Sunday. <laughs> it, it doesn't work like that. It's not like, yeah, today I'll, I'll take a number three, a little Mormonism with a side of Buddhism. Or, or maybe today I'm in the mood for a number six, a little agnosticism with a side of self-improvement. No, Christianity is not just our number one option among many options. Christianity is not just the double cheeseburger with a large fry from McDonald's, which is the best fast food meal that there is. It's not, it's, it's not just the best out of many options. Christianity is the only option. It's the whole menu before us. Amen. As much as people may want to argue with us about this, friends, we know this to be true. Christianity is it's the only historical religion. It's the only historical religion. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that other religions do not have history. They have a lot of history. They have been around for a long time and so they have plenty of history to look back on. But Christianity is the only religion based on a historically reliable event. It's the only religion that comes with lots and lots of historical evidence to back it up. Mormons claim that they have history really all they have is one man named Joseph Smith who claims to have had a vision and was given golden tablets, but those golden tablets were lost somehow. Buddhism is, is not based on historical events either. It's just based on the ideas and teachings of a certain man, but it doesn't have a moment or an event that says that that man is any different from the rest of us like the resurrection does for Jesus. 
Hinduism is, is called by some people the oldest religion in the world, which is emphatically not. But even if it was, that doesn't mean that it's based on historical evidence. Hinduism is just based on a range and variety of philosophies and rituals and even cosmological systems. But you can't look in Hinduism for a moment in history or evidence in history of, of what they claim. It's just ideas that you're invited to believe with them. Folks, Christianity is nothing like that. Praise the Lord. It's very different. As we're going to hear from Paul throughout this 15th chapter of this letter, our entire worldview as Christian men and women is based on a historically verifiable event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So much so that Paul says that everything is based on this, and if it is not true, if Jesus is still in the grave, then all of Christianity has no point at all. You and I are lunatics. Being in this room today for someone who is in the grave makes no sense. We should just go out and eat, drink, and be merry if the resurrection didn't happen. But we're not idiots, we're not lunatics. Because there's so much evidence that Jesus is no longer dead. Look at what Paul says. The end of verse four, he says that he, Jesus, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. Now in verse three, Paul gave evidence for Jesus' death by speaking of his burial. Now in verse four, Paul gives evidence for the resurrection by speaking of his appearance. He appeared it says, to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he says he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and he appeared also to me. Paul doesn't even include all of the people that, that saw Jesus alive. He doesn't include the women that found him outside of the grave. He doesn't include or mention John, the disciple whom he loved. He, he probably chooses the list that he does here in a way to stand out to the Corinthian readers who thought of themselves as elite. And so Peter was highly respected in the culture already. James, the brother of Jesus, who had been an unbeliever during Jesus' ministry, but became a believer and was the highly respected and, and leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus appeared to him. So Paul is orienting towards those that the Corinthians would say, oh wow, those people saw Jesus. And then he says, 500 others at one time. Here's the thing, folks. People often claim that, that Jesus' disciples either stole his body away in the night or they were hallucinating when, G, when they saw Jesus. That they were so tired and, and worn out and fearful from the circumstances around them that they together conjured up what they wanted to see. Friends, no. It just doesn't happen that way. 500 people do not hallucinate about the same thing and in the same way. It just doesn't happen that way, nor do they create a conspiracy theory together and then all stick to that conspiracy theory even in the face of death and martyrdom. That just doesn't happen. People are gonna jump ship quickly on that, right? We tell a story, let's say let's try to deceive some people into the story and then suddenly we're captured and our lives are threatened. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> only joking <laughs> no I didn't really steal it or I he didn't really rise from the dead he he's we stole his body it's actually buried over there they would quickly confess the 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 invalidity of what they were saying but that's not what happened 
500 people, many of whom, Paul says, are still alive at this moment. That means that their story could be corroborated and verified. 500 people and more stuck to the story, and many of them died for the story. Why? Because it really happened. It really happened. If you're a Christian, take courage with me today. This is amazing. Take courage in the midst of the hostile culture that we live in. Christ Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. Take courage, church. Our our faith is historically grounded. It is reliable. I could talk about this for hours. It is thrilling to consider all of the historical evidence that backs up our Christian faith. But take courage, friend. Stand strong. Grow in your love and in your affection and your allegiance to Christ Jesus. Because he's not dead. He's alive. And him, amen. And him being alive. Him conquering the grave gives us every reason in the world to celebrate this Christmas season. Again, wherever you feel pain, wherever you feel sorrow, wherever you feel like you are living in the darkness of a tomb, the little baby born in Bethlehem, in that moment he was a pinprick of light in the darkness, but he would grow to become a man and through his life, death, and resurrection, he would tear the darkness apart. The resurrection, the whole life of Christ dispels darkness in us. And then listen, if you are not a Christian, if you have never put your faith in King Jesus, can I just invite you to humbly consider these things today? Please, weigh the evidence again. If you are going to deny Christianity, your argument needs to come with more compelling historical options and alternatives than the resurrection. And I don't think that exists. And friend, if you ever want to talk about these things, I'd love to grab some coffee with you. Church, we must remember the gospel theologically. We must remember it historically. And finally, we must remember it personally. Point number three, remember the gospel personally. I love this so much. Paul is is making his argument. He is citing theological and historical evidence and realities. He's he's citing the eyewitnesses of these things. And, And then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. But he doesn't just leave it there as a statement of a fact. He appeared to me on the Damascus road. No, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. But Paul cannot consider the gospel in a merely clinical or historical way. It inevitably for Paul becomes personal. And friends, it must become personal for us as well. Listen, the gospel is not just a philosophy. No, it is personal salvation. It is personal redemption to his people. It is God's rescue mission for people that he knows and loves by name. And Paul knows that. And Paul knows, he knows that God so loved him, Paul, that he sent his son to die for him, Paul. It's almost too good for Paul to believe. He can't help but speak of the miracle of God's grace in his life personally. 
He reminds us here, friend, hear this. He reminds us that there is no sinner who is too far gone to be rescued by Jesus. Not one person in this room has sinned too much. Not one person has sinned too severely or so grossly that the light of God's grace is not able to shine into your life. I know you feel dark. I know you feel lost. I know you feel hopeless. But friend, I don't care how far gone you feel that you are. The baby born in Bethlehem came to save you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Friends, we as Christians, like Paul, must not forget what God has done for us personally in the gospel. We, we, we don't just remember it theologically and historically. We remember it personally. That, that's what Paul did. And it led to such joy and confidence in his life. Look, look at the humility in what Paul says here. These words that he uses about himself. He says, I'm the last of all the apostles. Now, that's chronological. He was the last to see Christ, but it was more than chronological for Paul. It's also positional. He saw himself as last. He says, I am the least. He, he knew that he was nothing apart from God's grace. He says that he is unworthy even to be called an apostle. Why? Well, because he persecuted the church. Acts chapter seven and eight, Paul ravishes the church. He literally hunted down Christian men and women and killed them on the spot. He says, I'm last, I'm least, I'm on a worthy sinner. For no one is too far gone to be saved by the grace of God, amen? amen? And Redeemer Fellowship, we must, like Paul, always remember how far gone we were when God saved us from our sin. Nothing will give you more joy this December. Nothing will make you more grateful than to take time this afternoon or in the morning to intentionally think about who you would be apart from God's grace in the gospel. I did this week. This week. I opened this text. I'm like, man, I can't even prep for a sermon. Let me just pause and give thanks and consider what he has done in my life. And I opened my phone and I opened the notes and I just started typing things. Who would I be apart from his grace? Friends, I would be... I would be so arrogant, even more arrogant than I am today. <laughs> when I was young, I, I only talked of myself. I, I tried to make every conversation be about me. I promoted myself in every way imaginable. Now, by God's grace, I sincerely enjoy hearing others talk more than myself and extending care. But listen, humility is not in my nature. The gospel put it there. Who, who would I be I'd be a workaholic. I would be materialistic and selfish in every single area of life, even more than I still am. Self-control and generosity and selflessness are not part of my nature. God's grace had to put them there. Who would I be? I would have committed countless sexual sins in my life. I know the impurity of my heart on a daily basis, even now. I know what I want to look at when I open Instagram and what I have to resist. I just know the tendency of my heart. I can't imagine where I would be apart from God's grace. Purity, self-control is not part of my nature. God's grace had to put it there. Who would I be? I would be an alcoholic. Self-control is not in my nature. I would give myself over to substance. God had to save me from that. Who would I be? I would be a very angry man. I remember when I was younger, I had a classmate who I just didn't like. He just, 
He pushed all my buttons. He annoyed me. And I just got so angry with him. I, for about a three-month period of time, I made it my goal to humiliate him before others. And I know even now, today, how angry I can get in my heart towards people who, who complicate my day. <laughs> Love and patience are not in my nature. Grace had to put him there. Church, apart from the grace of God, this is who I am. I am last, I am least, I am unworthy, I am a persecutor of, of the church. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love made me alive together with Jesus. But God, because of his resurrection power over the grave, he has also by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans chapter five, has made me alive together with him. It's the grace of God that I am anything today. It's the grace of God that I'm alive and not crushed under the weight of his wrath and justice. God has had such mercy on me. He's had such mercy on you. We must remember the gospel personally. We must not become clinical about it. The gospel is not clinical, it's personal. God so loved you that he gave his son for you. And friends, it needs to be said that this is one of the very best ways to both remember and to hold fast to the gospel that we love. Look again with me at verses one and two. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What does it mean to believe in vain? It means that we receive the gospel clinically, that we stand in the gospel, but not in a personal way. To, to not believe in vain is to hold fast to the gospel with joy and delight in our heart. That's what Paul means by not believing in vain. To believe in vain is to think of the gospel merely in theological or historical terms, but then to move beyond it to something else, to forget how personal it is to us. There are many people in the church who attend on a weekly basis and who are actively, visibly a part of what's going on, but who are not transformed by the gospel. They're believing in vain. They're not holding fast to the treasure which is Christ. But Paul says in verse 10 that God's grace in his life and church in our life is not in vain because it leads to personal transformation and joy. One of the ways that we receive, one of the ways that we will intentionally stand in and continue to be transformed by the gospel is not just to remember it historically, but to remember it personally to remember what he has done for us. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquering death's sting. And he did it for you and for me. And so let's stir our affections this morning. Let it stir our souls like he did for Paul to consider how much we don't deserve these things. And as we see how little we deserve it, let us loudly celebrate that it is only the grace of God that we are who we are. When Paul says in verse two that we are to to hold fast to the gospel. That, that word just makes me think of a young child clinging to the leg of his parent, loving them, needing them, knowing that they can't live without them. Redeemer Fellowship, may that be us. May we remember the gospel theologically, may we remember the gospel historically, and may we hold fast to the gospel because of its work in our lives.
Let's pray.